It is awesome being here. I think it'd be a good idea for us to kind of set the scene, catch you up, just in case you weren't here last week, or maybe you just need a little reminder. Let's all get on the same page. <laughs> last week was a great chapter taught by Pastor James, I like to call him. And it was an interesting chapter. Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, the mother of twins Esau and Jacob, kind of masterminded a plot to steal or trick away Esau's birthright as the older twin and to steal it away for Jacob. She commandeered Jacob to lie, to deceive, to manipulate Isaac. And if you remember that very familiar story, it was kind of crazy. It worked, right? When Esau was out hunting for game to make his dad's favorite meal so they could sit down and he would bless him and pass on his birthright, Rebecca had a novel idea to grab her favorite son, Jacob, and go kill a goat and make some stew and dress up in all of Esau's clothes and put fur on his arms and his back from animals because Esau was hairy. And then they, they would pretend that they were Esau. And because Isaac didn't see very good and he's old, that he would buy this and unknowingly give the blessing, the birthright. To Jacob. Crazy story. <laughs> and it worked. He reluctantly and unknowingly gave the birthright to Jacob. But as you left last week, you may be thinking, how did they get away with this heist? How could God allow this trickery? They got away with it, but as deceit and manipulation always does, it causes some problems and some fallouts, amen? And you may remember the last part, the last few verses of chapter 27. The biggest problem that I see is that Esau was mad and he wanted to kill his brother. In verse 41 of last week, it says that he hated him because of this and that because his dad was old and he was gonna die soon, he was gonna let him die, mourn, and then he was gonna kill his brother. And Rebecca couldn't let this stand. That's her favorite. And after all, she didn't want these two to kill each other. Those are their sons. So when she found that out, she told Jacob, remember, hey, get out of town. Go down to my brother's house, Uncle Laban. Go get out of here for a while until your brother's wrath passes. Go there for a while and I'll call for you. and We'll bring you back. Mm. But that's not the end of it, right? Get away, go away, get lost. The problem with that was, was it a good time for Jacob to leave? He had just got the blessing, right? His dad's ailing. How could we get Jacob out of town so his brother doesn't kill him? Well, the last verse, Rebecca the little spiderweb maker that she is, plants a little seed of manipulation and it's the last verse. And she says something like this. Hey, honey, Isaac, 
I hate Esau's <laughs> wives, the Hittites. The pagan girls that he married, they make me sick. I loathe them. And if Jacob finds a wife from these pagans, it's going to crush me. And that's how it ends. Hmm. Plants a little seed. Let's find out if Isaac bites. <laughs> Chapter 28, verse 1. Here's Isaac's response to, hey, honey, let's not talk openly about our sons. You know who I really don't like? I don't like those, those wives that um, Esau married back in chapter 26. If, if Jacob does that, I might as well not even live. So take that and think about that while you're eating your stew. First, verse 1, chapter 28, let's see what he does. <laughs> then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojourners that God gave to Abraham. Thus, Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, and the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. There's a novel idea. He had a novel idea. <laughs> I don't think he had a novel idea. <laughs> Let's send Jacob away right now at the worst time. Because you know what? You need to take a wife from where we're from. Go down to Uncle Laban. Let's send you away. Rebecca is still manipulating her husband. And Isaac bites, sends Jacob away. Go get a wife from Uncle Laban and get out of town. Rebecca got what she wanted yet again. And I think it's worth at least a couple thoughts, kind of from last week, but even on these first five verses, I see Isaac being manipulated yet again as he sends Jacob away. And the first thought is this. There is no manipulation in, or extortion or deceit in love especially, and most importantly, in married love. <laughs> this, is, this is her husband. And instead of speaking openly about their sons and praying, Allah last week, trust and obeying God in the answers that he gives, she continues to manipulate. And I want to remind us all, there is no manipulation. Spouses, there's no extortion in love. Love comes from the heart of a volunteer. It gives because it knows what's best for the need of another. That's love. You know, maybe a better plan would have been this. And when we manipulate our spouses, maybe a better plan would be this. Hey, honey, <laughs> sweetie, our boys are going to kill each other. 
over this thing that I plotted. I don't want that. We love our kids. Let's send Jacob away. (laughs) Wouldn't that be better? Sit down and pray together and communicate. There's something raw when a couple prays out loud with each other because you see the vulnerabilities. You see the honesty and the openness. You don't see the manipulation. You see the raw pain and need, right? And you pray, and maybe they, God would tell them what to do, and then they would just trust and obey. That'd be a better plan. First thought I had, there's no manipulation or deceit. There's no extortion in love. You're not each other's mercenaries. Amen? We should think about this just a little bit. We do it in sneaky ways. But we ought to be careful if we're not praying and communicating with our spouses because love does not manipulate for anything. For the towns you live in, for the cars you drive, for the houses you live in, for the sex you want to have, it's never extortion. It's never manipulation to get what you want. Love gives, and it gives from the heart of a volunteer who knows. Amen? So that's the first thought that I had. The second thought, when I think about this, when we do that, we, when we don't, when we manipulate, and we forget about loving one another and communicating, we're really underestimating really the depravity in the depths of deceit. Do you know it's far-reaching, far more that we could ever imagine when we plant a little seed and we manipulate it and we deceive and we lie? It goes very, very deep into a dark place. And I don't know if you guys know this, but Rebecca and Jacob are going to reap what they sow here real soon. God will not be mocked. They think they got away with this. But these consequences will be devastating for these two as we read ahead. Let's send him away for a while in the original means. Let's send Jacob so Esau doesn't kill him for a matter of days. Not weeks, not months, not years, certainly not decades. And it would be 20 years until Jacob could come back around to the house of his father. And there would be no reunion for Rebecca, She will never set eyes again on her beloved Jacob, all because she deceived and underestimated the depravity of deceit and manipulation. We ought to be careful. And for Jacob, he's hard to love, don't you think? I don't really know what Rebecca saw in him. He must have been a good-looking lad. But what a trickster. What a scoundrel. And you know that saying, you can't out-trick a trickster? Well, that's not the Bible, because you just wait and see the coming chapters. The next seven chapters are going to be dominated by the narrative of Jacob's life. And you're going to see next week, even Laban tricks him with his daughter Leah. Come next week. It's a great story. But the trickster starts to get tricked. He starts to get a taste of his own medicine. Yeah, he got what he think he wanted, but... God's going to move, and and he's going to pay for some of this deceit. Even though here in maybe a few weeks, months, chapter 37, the irony. Uh, It's not karma, but I I do think it's irony. (laughs) 
I don't know if you know that chapter, but Jacob has a favorite son, kind of like his mommy did. And his name was Joseph. And he made him a really pretty coat that his brothers didn't like. And they beat the snot out of him and they threw him in a pit. They sold him down to Egypt. Do you remember this? Jacob, where's my son? Where's my favorite? His brothers lied to him. Those wild animals. The trickster gets tricked. The irony of having a favorite. They're going to get what's coming to him. Now look, ultimately God's will will be done. He's going to get Jacob right where he wants him. He is. Deceitful ways and all. Going to get Jacob right where he wants him. But the difference is, oh, the pain. Oh, the blessings that will be missed when you take matters into your own hands. Underestimate this kind of thing, right? And that's really what she did, my third point here. She took matters into her own hands. Isn't that, isn't that really ultimately what she's guilty of? No one knew better than Rebecca that Jacob was going to get the birthright, right? Just a, what, a couple chapters ago, they were in her womb fighting so much, and it was so distressful, she sought the Lord, and the, law, and the Lord gave her answers. It said, hey, listen, these two in your stomach, they represent two different nations, and the younger will rule over the older. She knew Jacob was going to get the birthright. She knew that. But yet she didn't want to wait. And she wanted to do what a lot of us do all the time. We want to just help God out a little bit, right? <laughs> it's really a rerun of chapter 16. Maybe the women of this family ought to learn not to take matters into their own hand. Her mother-in-law, Sarah, remember? God said, you guys are going to have a baby, a promised child named Isaac. I promise you, God Almighty is giving you a baby, a promised child. And 10 years went by, and Sarah knew the will of the Lord, but she just wanted to help God out a little bit because, after all, she was old and barren, so she floats some sort of indecent proposal and gives Hagar, her, her slave girl, to Abraham to create a baby. And we know that that wasn't a good result. It wasn't the promised child, was it? It was Ishmael, the one after the flesh. And whenever you see Ishmael, you think flesh. You don't think spiritual promises, Right? That's, that's taking matters into your own hand. Speaking of Esau, I mean, speaking of Ishmael, the next couple of verses flips now to focus in on Esau a little bit. What's going on with Esau and all this? And as we'll see, he's still chasing down, still living after the flesh. Speaking of Ishmael, you'll see <laughs> he goes and marries Ishmael's daughter, not a good move, Esau. Let's check it out. Verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padam Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. 
and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as a wife, besides the two he already had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. What? Esau heard the conversation about not liking the pagan Canaanites. Esau's basically, my, my mom and dad don't like my wife's. In fact, it says in chapter 26, it made them bitter. <laughs> so well, that's not good. Maybe I should find a wife that's not a Canaanite. Where does he go? Well, let's just head on down to Uncle Ishmael, the one after the flesh. And let's marry one after the flesh. Let's, let's marry his daughter. Esau, in my opinion, has been the victim in this whole thing. Don't you think kind of? Like, for me, I relate more with Esau than I do Jacob. I mean, what's happening right now? You feel yourself, what's wrong with Esau? You know, he's the one that got tricked. His brother should have gave him the soup. He just didn't waste an opportunity and sold his birthright. He gets tricked right out from under. He was out doing what his dad said. But the fundamental problem with Esau is he's from the flesh. He's interested in fleshly things, what he can see and touch and taste. That's what he's after. The problem with him selling his birthright wasn't that Jacob should have gave it to him. He should have. The problem was es it was Esau saw no value in spiritual blessings. He wasn't after spiritual things. That was the problem. I think it's why in Romans chapter 9, that God said, he repulsed me. God's saying, Esau, my son Jesus is not going to come through you. It's going to come through one after I beat him up a little bit that's going to hunger and thirst and see value after spiritual things. At least Jacob valued the birthright, enough to steal it. You see, Esau already had two pagan wives. And in his clumsiness and his deft understanding of what God and his parents really wanted for him, made up for that by running down and marrying one after the flesh. What a guy Esau, right? <laughs> Missing the boat. Well, the story continues, and it bounces back over to Jacob. Now, Jacob's about ready to get, he just got sent away by his dad. In a way, Rebecca getting what she wants, rescuing him from the wrath of his brother. Get a fresh start. Go get a wife down from where we met, where we're from. Go down there, and an amazing thing happens on the way. Let's check it out. It's a great story. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on earth 
And on the top of it, it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What a beautiful, magnificent scene, don't you think? God meets Jacob <laughs> in an incredible way. And I think it is both amazing and significant that God would meet Jacob in this state, in this way, right? This is the state that Jacob's in. He's in a dynamic, dark, and barren state in this moment. Dynamic as he's on the move. He's not on a pilgrimage seeking the Lord. He's running away from all things that are godly, away from his responsibilities. He's afraid and he's running with his tail between his legs. He's on the move. Yet God finds him. And it's a dark place. It said literally the sun went down. It's dark. And it's a barren place. As we'll find the name is Lutz. It, it means literally rocky outcroppings, like a spine of rocks. It was so rocky and barren that he had to grab something soft for his head. Oh, no, I'll grab a pillow. That's how rocky it was. Yes, literally, but how about figuratively and symbolically here? It was probably a very alone, dark, bony, desolate, barren place in his heart and his mind. I can only imagine what went through his mind. We don't know for sure, but perhaps he was afraid. Afraid that his brother might be a day away to kill him. Afraid that he might die on his way to Uncle Laban. You know, back then, traveling was difficult. Is all he had is what he could put in his hands or on his back. It's not like he had a full tank and a credit card. Go to Uncle Laban's. He was in need and he was afraid. Afraid of the future and probably, maybe, I hope had some regret about his past. Have you ever been there in that dark place? Maybe he was running through his head the lies and the deceit that he played on his dad and his brother. He ought to be ashamed of himself. It's in this place, it's in this state, running away, dark and barren, where he runs right into God. God finds him and meets him in a special way. God found 
Jacob. He was the instigator and the initiator of a new relationship as he is always with you and I. You see, God meets Jacob here in this time of darkness because he saw the need and he wanted to meet the need. He is a God who paves the way to heaven with mercy and grace because we need it when we're dark and when we're despair and when we're barren, amen? We have a God who paves the way to heaven with mercy and grace, both the initiator and the instigator of that relationship and of that salvation, in my opinion. That's our God. He's a holy God that bridges the gap between sinful man and a holy God. That's our God. That's what's pictured here in this ladder or this stairway, right? That he would condescend to man. That's what blew away Jacob in this place. That's what's pictured If you remember what it said, it said there was a ladder or a staircase or a ramp and and there were angels, angels ascending and descending. Come on. What would this mean to Jacob? What, you know, I don't know if I'm sure you guys all believe this, but just like back then, it's true today, there are angels ascending and descending to God, his messengers about their work. And one of the things that they do is they protect God's people. Did you know that? They guard us. Psalm 91 tells us that his messengers, his angels are protecting you and I, ascending and descending. I'd say this, if we actually knew what this room looked like in the spiritual realm, it might tighten us up a bit. It might tighten us up a bit because there's both messengers from God in this room and possibly messengers from the evil one here today. It's a spiritual realm that parallels the natural and it's here, even though we can't see it, it's here. And I'm thankful right now we're talking about the good guys. We're talking about God's angels, his messengers, and they ascend and descend. And one of the things they do is they help us. They protect us. Psalm 91 says this, for he, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Come on. That's where we get guardian angel from. We do have angels guarding us, protecting us, holding us up so we don't hit our foot against the stone. This is the same Psalm that our God, Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, quoted to Satan when he was out in the wilderness, when God's spirit took him out there to be tempted in all ways, remember? So he would be a tried and true God. He's tempted in all ways, yet without sin. In the very last last temptation, you may remember that. Temptation in the Gospels. Satan took him up 
on the pinnacle of the, the uh, way up on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, throw yourself off, Jesus. And then he quotes this psalm. They will guard you. Their hands will hold you up. They will save you from dying. I love Jesus' response. Don't tempt the Lord your God. Love that psalm. We have angels, and part of their work is protecting us, and they're here today, amen, as they were there with Jacob. I'm sure Jacob's going, ah, and even in this place, there's angels. They do other things. And what other thing of note is, do you know they're learning about God's grace every day, according to Peter chapter 1, verse 12, with bent necks, gazing down, at humans, looking at the gospel, the grace that Jesus Christ provided for you and I, and it says they're learning about grace. Why would they need to learn about grace? These spirit beings? I mean, think about this for just one moment. And if you didn't know this, it's true. Grace is a human experience. And they would say, it's a human experiment. God gave us grace. Whoever wants this free gift of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins, it's open and welcome to you. And when he sees that message go out, Peter says the gospel, this good news that came from heaven, delivered by God's spirit, when you believe that and you have grace and you live by grace, and even though we are bad, and God looks at us through the lens of Jesus Christ as perfection. He says, just put it on my, put it on my son's account. That's perfection. What? That's a miracle. And that's something that was only afforded humans. It never was afforded spirit beings. I don't know if you realize this, but man, before humans were made, it didn't go down that way. Let's just say eternity passed sometime before we were made. There were beings, spiritual beings. There were angels. And one of them was amazing. If you want to read Ezekiel and Isaiah, it talks about this one called Lucifer who was brilliant. Brilliant in the way that he looked. He shone. Brilliant in the way he sounded. He had pipes. He was set in a garden of rocks and he shone. And he was something to behold. He was so much to behold, he thought maybe he could elevate himself to be equal to God, right? And he mounted a rebellion. And it said that he summoned a third of these angels, these spirit beings, to be on his side. And they were going to go revolt against God, but God squashed that revolt, didn't he? Cast him down. In one second, a third of the spirit beings that God created, along with his prized creation, Lucifer, were condemned to separation from him forever. Just like that. No grace for you. That's why these angels, with swooped next, the original's amazing. It just, it's, it's when you're looking intently at something. Like when you're looking, but you're really looking and they're watching you and I in the grace that we get. Amen? 
that's some of what angels are doing and up and down and all that's awesome and I love angels, but the best part of it, Jehovah God was at the top of this ramp. And if you remember, he was speaking blessings and promises. Not only patriarchal blessings and promises, as if you read it, he just gave Jacob everything that he promised Abraham. It was now passed on to him. The Abrahamic covenant that God cut, cut with Abraham now is and possessed by Jacob. He gave it to him. Awesome. But even more than that, and I think this is what strikes in my heart, and I think it's what really arrested the soul of Jacob is he personally promises him some other stuff. And you see him here in verse 16. Nope, verse 15. Here they are. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back. I will not leave you until I have given you everything I promised. Listen, it speaks of a personal presence. I'm with you, Jacob. I'm with you. I'm not with your granddaddy, Abraham, anymore. I'm not talking about Isaac, your dad now. I'm talking about you, Jacob. I am with you. Amen? This is a personal God. I am with you. Protection. I will keep you and protect you. Abraham experienced this same saying, yes, in chapter 15, when God said, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. I will protect you. It's me. I will personally protect you, Jacob. And I will preserve you as well. I'll bring you back to this place. Yes, it's going to take 20 years of me sanding off the rough edges of you, you little sly fox, you little trickster, you little heel snatcher. It's going to take some work, but I will preserve you and I will bring you back as we'll see to this very same place. I will preserve you. And finally, I will be faithful to you, Jacob. I will not leave you until I have done everything I promised you. Isn't that our God? Faithful to the end. Not only the promise maker, but the promise keeper. Amen? Jacob and us, all the time, show ourselves faithless, don't we? But he finds himself faithful because he cannot deny himself. He's the faithful one, amen? The promise keeper. That is an awesome scene, don't you think? And listen, when Jacob wakes up here in a second, you're going to see he has an epiphany. Let's check it out. Then Jacob, verse 16, awoke from sleep and said, hmm, 
Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not even know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. What an epiphany. If you caught it, the epiphany was this. I didn't think God was here. Turns out God is in this place. That's what blew his mind. Jacob, that's what blew his mind. Is that God could be in this dark and desolate place, both figuratively and literally, that God could be here. It blew this ancient's mind. It reminds me of a scene from one of my favorite movies. It's called All the Pretty Horses, starring Matt Damon and Penelope Cruz. It's an epic drama. And I never forget a scene in that movie. Matt Damon gets thrown in a Mexican prison, and it is not a good place. And as the officer is interrogating him and about ready to release him out into this dirty, bad, bad, evil place, he says something like this. Some crazy people say that God is in this place, but rest assured, God is not in this place. And Matt Damon's like, oh my, what am I getting myself into here? Yeah. We often think the same things. That how could a holy, righteous God be in a bad place? That's Jacob's epiphany. That's where God does his best work. In our darkness and our despair, when we're running, that's where he specializes in meeting us and seeking us and finding us. Amen? God is in this place, and I didn't even know it. The light bulb came on. What changed for Jacob? His circumstances didn't. Didn't change. He's in the same conundrum he's in when he got this vision. The most significant thing to, to, to Jacob is that everything changed because he figured out he had an epiphany of a personal, omnipresent God that provided a way for him and he sought a relationship with him. Amen? That's what blew his mind. This isn't an ivory tower God. He's everywhere. Even in the bad places that I get myself in. Listen, we often and rightly so, look and study the Old Testament through the periscope of the New Testament on this side of the cross, amen? We see a lens of that, that periscope with a big cross and Jesus's grace through it. And when you look at the Old Testament through that lens, through that periscope, you see Jesus everywhere and you see the cross everywhere. You see grace and mercy paving the way everywhere, right? Amen? We see that. We see this ladder as our perfect Jesus. Do we not? Because on this side of the cross, we know Jesus is the ladder, our perfect ladder, our access, the connection between sinful man and a holy God. We know that. We know that because Jesus 
told us it himself in John chapter 1. His interaction with Nathaniel. What a great interaction. Philip, Nathaniel's friend, brings Nathaniel to Jesus, say, I found the Messiah. I found the Son of God. I found out what all of us Jews are looking for and what all the Old Testament speaks of. It's Jesus, come meet him. And when they're far away, Jesus looks at Nathaniel and says, there's an Israelite without deceit. And Nathaniel says, how'd you know that? I haven't even met you yet. <laughs> And Jesus says, Nathaniel, I knew you when you were under the fig tree before Philip even brought you to me. And Nathaniel goes, you are the son of God. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, settle down in a way. You hang out with me, you're going to see greater things. And he says this. He says, Nathaniel, you're going to see the gates of heaven open and you're going to see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of God, on me. Nathaniel knew what that meant. He was a good Jew. And most assuredly, he knew Jacob's ladder story. Most assuredly, that had been passed to him. And now Jesus is saying, I am your perfect and the world's perfect Jacob's ladder. Amen? We know that. We know that Jesus is the only way to bridge this gap. John chapter 4, verse 16, right? I am the way, 14, verse 6, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. He's the ladder, right? We know that because of that, he's an approachable God that we have access to him. And it's a sympathetic approach and access According to Hebrews, we can boldly come to him because he sympathizes with our weakness. And we can approach God through him, this mediator, this great high priest. Amen? We can come boldly before that throne of grace. We know this when we look down through the Old Testament by looking through the new. Amen? It's awesome. It's awesome. It's him. He's our ideal perfect Jacob Slatter. He came to earth through the line of Jacob, through the provisions of God, and redeemed us so that we might live in heaven for eternity with him. And that road is paved by mercy and grace in our dark time. Amen? But Jacob surely had not an inkling of what we just talked about. That's not what blew his mind. What blew his mind is that God was in this place and he didn't even know it. What blew his mind is that the creator, this is what probably what he knew at this time. He knew that the creator of the universe, the creator of all that he could see, feel, touch, everything, human and unhuman, that one, condescended down and initiated and instigated a relationship personally with him in his dark hour. That's what he knew, and that's what blew his mind. Amen? Because that's amazing. And it's an epiphany, in my opinion, that's going to change him 
Oh, it's just a start for, for Jacob, as we'll see. It's a little seed that's planted that will grow into something. It's just a start, but it's an epiphany that's going to change everything for Jacob down the road. It's going to turn him in from a name called Jacob, which means heel snatcher or trickster or sly fox or wrestler, whatever you want to call it, to God's going to rename him Israel. How cool is that? His response proves that it's just a start, though. He's still an arrogant little trickster, not using his faith. Verse 18 to the end here. So early in the morning, Jacob took that stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of this place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at, at first. And then Jacob made a vow, a promise to God, saying this, if God will be with me and he will keep me in this way that I go and that he will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I can come to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar or memorial, shall be God's house. And all that I have, I will give to him a full tenth to God. So, Jacob, in response to this great epiphany, this amazing scene where God meets him, his response when he wakes up is to sanctify or set apart this place. And he does that by taking a rock and pour oil on it. And he sanctifies it for God. He sets it apart as special for a future altar, a future place to worship this God. This is what he does. And it's a start. Setting up a cornerstone for something in the future. But it's not the end because those verses that follow that kind of break my heart because I thought, Jacob, man, he says, if God, it's a conditional promise to God. If God does all these things for me, then he will be my God and I'll give him the 10th and I'll set up this little pillar and I'll make it an altar and I'll worship him. He'll then be my God. If and then then. How gracious God was paving the way to heaven, right? With mercy and grace. In response, Jacob says, hmm, if you do this, God, then I will do something. And to prove that he's not there yet, just to remind you, when you, we use conditional clauses in our grammar, if and then then statements. If you do this, I will do this for you. When you do those things, those are called conditional clauses. There's no faith involved in conditions. There's no faith in that. You don't say, if you do this, then I'll do this. You do this because he said they were going to do them. <laughs> Jacob has a long ways to go. The next seven chapters, Jacob will dominate the narrative of this family he will become the patriarch. And the next seven chapters, in my opinion, are nothing more than God taking and chiseling off, reforming him. The seed is going to grow. He has a, he's, he's planting the seed. But it's not there yet. We will see next week. We'll see this little confident, arrogant trickster 
get knocked down a notch when his uncle takes advantage of him and tricks him. We're going to see that irony of his son, Joseph, and the tricking and all the deceit of all that event. We're going to see God beating it out of him. And he's going to come to the place where by faith, he is his God. Amen? Amen. So Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you're the faithful one, that even when we fail and we are faithless, that you are always true to your character, that you are the promise keeper. You are the faithful one to your people. Thank you for providing a way through Jesus Christ for all of the world, that he was the satisfaction on that cross for the world's sin. The way to heaven is paved with the mercy and grace of your son, Jesus Christ. And we praise you and we exalt you for that truth. In his name, amen. 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 Guys, have a great night.